Welcome to Light Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Can, author of the number one best-selling book, Sensitivity is Your Superpower, How to Harness Your Gifts, Fulfill Your Purpose, and Create a Life of Joy. And if you are a sensitive soul who's struggling right now, we do have a free gift for you. It is the Sensitive Soul Empowerment Guide, Three Ways of Navigating Your Way to More Peace, Positivity, and Personal Power. And if you'd like that free, you can just go to sensitivesoulguide.com. Dot com, so sensitivesoulguide.com. And uh, every week we like to bring you guests on the show who are going to make a difference. And um, this is no exception. This particular week we have Dr. Jacob Lieberman with us today. Very special guest. Uh, i got to tell you, many of my late uh, warrior sensitive souls are struggling with sight. And, and interestingly, um, both physically and metaphysically, but but even more physically. And Dr. Lieberman was one of the few people that I've ever heard of being able to literally uh, return his sight after many decades, uh, you know, of his sight not being clear. And interestingly, him being um, optometrist uh, trained, so he's all about uh, light and not just that physical, you know, disability that many of us have, myself included, uh, but he was able to, you know, spontaneously clear um, his sight after wearing glasses for many years, he remained clear for 45 years, but also about, you know, illuminating our light and our vision and our consciousness. His newest book, Luminous Light, How the Science of Light Unlocks the Art of Living, is now available, and it reveals how light guides us in our every step so we can fulfill our reason for being. So he's well known for his discoveries in the fields of light, vision, and consciousness. He's been enthusiastically endorsed by luminaries in the field of health, science, and spirituality, including Deepak Chopra, Bruce Lipton, my hero, <laughs> and Eckhart Tolle. Originally trained as an optometrist and vision scientist, his life changed in 1976 after a miraculous healing of his own eyesight, leading him to a deeper understanding of light and the science of life. Having helped countless individuals recover their eyesight, he began to understand the words of Jonathan Swift. Real vision is the ability to see the invisible. So welcome, Dr. Lieberman. So awesome to have you on today. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you today as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, we would love to hear your story because there's so many of us who, interestingly, uh, many of us sensitive souls, have incredible um, intuitive gifts, including clairvoyance, so myself included. So I have what I call a lot of uh, strong inner vision, so I see a lot of things in my head. Uh, but interestingly, my physical vision, I've had um, retinal tears early on um, in medical school, um, I actually had, uh, back in the day, they used to put uh, a buckle, a silastic buckle in there. So I actually feel like I'm like part, you know, <laughs> part machine here, um, you know, around this, this eyeball that I have just so the retina would not peel off of it. Nowadays, they use gas and other types of uh, less invasive technologies. But there's many of us who have really great inner sight, interestingly, a clairvoyance, but not outer sight or that somehow our vision has outer vision has disintegrated over time. Um, so I would love for you to share your story about um, how you healed or, or what happened in your own, you know, physical healing, if you will, of your sight. You have an interesting question. And um, you've separated the eyesight from insight. Um, but they're inseparable. So uh, in my particular case, I had worn glasses for about 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I had a lot of problems with schoolwork and reading, which of course is required for learning. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered is that the stress that we encounter from doing a lot of close work, a lot of computer work, a lot of work on our handheld devices, and the fact that we have become an indoor culture. Mm -hmm. Those are the major contributors to deteriorating eyesight. And the reason that is, is that we have two eyes in order to have three-dimensional vision. Correct. In other words, since each eye is located in a slightly different position on the face, when both eyes are looking at something, each eye has a slightly different perspective. 
And when you merge those two disparate perspectives, you end up with something called three-dimensionality. Now, three-dimensionality is another word for depth perception. Mm -hmm. But depth perception is just not the ability to perceive where one thing is in relation to the other. Depth perception, as it states, is the ability to see deeply into mm. things. And so there is the first connection between what we think of as physical sight and insight. When we are looking at a computer or at a book or at a handheld device, our eyes are limited to two dimensions. And since the eyes are frontal extensions of the brain, they are the satellite dishes that connect the external and internal world. When you limit the neurology to two dimensions, even though it is designed for three-dimensionality, you immediately initiate the process of stress. So mm. increases in blood pressure, respiration, heart rate, uh, muscle tensions in the neck and in the shoulders begin almost immediately when the, vi when the vision system is constricted to two dimensions, even though it is designed for three. So that's a little bit of background. And so what happened for me is I started becoming nearsighted within 10 days of starting college where the, the reading demand was very severe and I remember sitting uh, taking a test and I was looking at my paper and then I looked up to take a look at the next thing that was on the front of the class and my vision was blurry and then it cleared and immediately I had my vision examined and the doctor said oh you're a little nearsighted you have astigmatism they gave me glasses I had the immediate gratification of being able to see clearer, but it did not in any way impact the problems I had with reading and comprehension, and within six months I needed stronger glasses. And those of, of us that have worn glasses realize that that's the progression that it occurs. Every six months to a year, you go back to the doctor with the same complaints. I'm not able to see as well as I used to. And they often give you a stronger version of the same prescription they gave you the year before. And even though they're doing the best they can with their knowledge base, they end up treating the symptoms of the problem but not dealing with the causative factor, which is the fact that we live in a culture where the demand is to read, look at computers, handheld devices all day long, mm -hmm. and we rarely are getting enough sunlight. And sunlight is a critical aspect of this because light uh, entering the eyes not only serves vision, it's, it is the optimal fuel for life. All functions of the body are light dependent. So when light enters the eyes, about 25% of it is used in the process of seeing and vision. About 75% of it go to the portions of the brain that control all of our life-sustaining functions. So when we are not getting enough sunlight or fueling the human energy system with artificial light, which is grossly different from sunlight, what happens is we are feeding our system energy that is suboptimal for its functioning. So the combination of not getting enough natural light and being outside in an unconfined environment 
and spending most of our time looking at near, at computers, is what causes eyesight deterioration to be the biggest health epidemic in the world. In industrialized nations like China, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, Israel, the US, and so on, nearsightedness uh, occurs in 90% or more of college students, and it keeps getting higher and higher the, wow. more, edu the more education that you have. And <laughs> people are rarely born with these disorders, so even though it may run in a family, these typically are not genetic disorders. These are disorders that are the result of interacting with the environment in a way that is considered culturally normal, but physiologically totally unnatural. So in my particular case, uh, I first started wearing glasses uh, around 1967. And about nine and a half years later, uh, after being in practice for several years and realizing that all my patients were coming in each year with the same complaint they had the year before and were continually being given stronger glasses, I decided to do some experiments to see what I could do that might prevent the further deterioration of my own vision or mm -hmm. possibly improve it. So I started doing things like wearing my glasses when I needed them, like for driving and in the office, but removing them when I was out taking a walk or in my own home or never wearing them, for instance, while I was reading or doing close work. That seemed to help. So then what I did is I noticed that when I left my glasses off, my eyesight seemed to improve a little bit. So I started making myself weaker pairs of glasses. Not significantly weaker, but just a minor amount of change where I gently reduced the prescription, not to make things blurry, but to allow things to appear softer. Mm. And I noticed that when the world appeared softer, something in me also softened. And so when the, when the edges of what we are perceiving are not sharp, as they almost never occur in Mother Nature, it softens and rounds out our own edges and things begin to shift. So I found all of those things were helpful. And then I started adding some vision training exercises, if you will, which were, for me, like mini meditations that allowed me to, to make discoveries about what it is within us that is actually seeing. So I did all these things, and there was some improvement, not as much as I would have liked. And then one day I had a, a very profound experience. I had been meditating since about 1971. It was now 1976. And each day I would take about 20 minutes, and I would remove my glasses, sit down, and meditate. It was a Sunday. I sat down, I removed my glasses, I closed my eyes, I just began to notice internally, notice my breathing, just notice what was happening, sensations, and so on. And somewhere in the midst of this process, I seemed to disappear. I can't tell you exactly what occurred. But even though my eyes were closed, I seemed to have uh, an inner vision. I seemed to be able to see the room I was sitting in, including myself. 
Now today you might call it an out-of-body experience, but in 1976 I had never heard of that term. Um, I just realized that even though my eyes were closed, everything was clear. And when I say everything was clear, I don't mean that there was optical clarity to what I was perceiving. I mean that the mind was absolutely still and there were no questions because everything was clear. And I was in that state for some period of time and when I came out of this meditation two things became very evident to me. The first was even though I came out of the meditation my eyes were open my glasses were not on my face but my vision was crystal clear. In other words wherever I looked was much much clearer than it had been <clears throat> 20 minutes before when I took my glasses off. The second thing was that I realized that while I was having this unusual awareness while I was meditating it felt as if whatever was seeing was seen from everywhere in the room simultaneously. In other words, it was a very different experience than we have in everyday life when we are observing something external to us and what is obvious is that we are here and what we're looking there uh, what we're looking at is there. In this experience during this meditation, whatever was seeing was seeing from everywhere. Wow. And having never uh, noticed anything like that or read about anything like that, I didn't know what had happened. At the same time, my eyesight continued to be clear and although at first it was like oh my god what's going on here within a couple of minutes the exhilaration became fear because hmm. that's not supposed to happen <laughs> what is wrong and so I got in my car I put my eyeglasses on the seat next to me because everything was crystal clear yet my license said I needed to have glasses on for driving so I put them on the seat next to me in case I was stopped I drove to my office and I proceeded to check my eyesight at 20 feet away as I had done with all my patients except I used eye charts that I didn't typically use and I could consistently see one line better than 2020. In my particular case, that was a 300% improvement in eyesight. Mm. That was rather shocking. So after I checked that over and over again and consistently was seeing so much clearer, I decided to examine myself, which I had never done before because normally when you examine a patient they're behind this instrument and you can see the lens power in my case I had to put myself behind the instrument and change the power of the lenses without knowing what was actually being changed the bottom line was that after checking my eyesight noticing this 300 percent improvement without straining or squinting then I examined myself and when I got to whatever the prescription was that seemed to give or provide the best eyesight I thought well I'm going to come out from the instrument and it's going to show no prescription 
because I'm seeing perfectly clear. Mm -hmm. When I came out, to my amazement, the prescription in the device was almost identical to the prescription in my glasses. Hmm. Now, you say, wait a minute, something's wrong with this. How can you be seeing clearer by 300% yet the optical measurements of your eyes have not changed at all? And that was shocking to me, but then it came to me that the only way that could occur is if the source of our seeing was something other than just the eyes or just the brain. Mm. And the reason I came to that is the optical measurements of the eyes had not changed at all. And I didn't think it was possible for my brain to change instantaneously, the wiring in my brain to change instantaneously in that way. So I had a feeling something else was going on. And based on that experience, which I should now tell you has lasted uh, for 46 years, I'll be 74 in November, mm. and I wow, have never cool. worn glasses for distance or reading since that day. I used to be nearsighted with a significant amount of astigmatism. Now I'm farsighted to the same degree I used to be nearsighted, and I have even more astigmatism. That should make it very difficult still to see at distance and especially up close. But I don't have any problem seeing at distance or up close. And I have my eyes examined every year. So, and my doctors can't understand it either. The bottom so, line So, was, hang on just yeah. a sec. So, when you have somebody else test your eyesight, um, do they still read that farsightedness even though you can Absolutely. read perfectly well? Yes, okay. they still find that it shows a prescription of farsightedness and a significant amount of astigmatism, and yet I have no vision complaints. I can still read the eye chart without squinting or straining better than is necessary for me to pass my driver's test, and my near vision is clear as well. Um, I spent years, about four years, uh, after I had this experience in 76, uh, doing an experiment, and I called it an experiment on the workings of the mind. I had a feeling that there was somewhere in the mind that if I could interact that place or determine what that state of mind was, I could gain enough insight to be able to share this with others so that they might also have the experience that I had. And um, I was never able to determine what the state of mind was. However, over the last 40-something years, what I've come to see is that it's not actually a state of mind. It's a state of no mind. Mm. And let me see if I can take that a step further for your listeners. Mm -hmm. Most of us are convinced that we are what we call our minds. So it's a, we say, I can change my mind. I don't mind it, and we use other expressions like that, but we call it my mind. And we have been conditioned to believe that the chatter that goes on in the mind is the way we direct our lives. Uh, what I've come to notice through my own direct experience over the last 73 and a half years 
is that the conversation uh, that we notice in the mind that we refer to as thinking, but most of the time is just worrying, <laughs> is um, almost an observation of the conditioning that we have undergone from our birth as well as the conditioning that has been passed on from one generation to the next that we are the current day inhabitants of that has gone on for millions of years because humans have been conditioned forever and ever and ever and the conditioning is we are conditioned to do things so that they are acceptable we call that normal mm. but most of what we do that we call normal is actually unnatural and so conditioning is the recording of what has occurred in the past and what compensations we have been conditioned to embrace to try our best to experience safety, security, and predictability in a world where safety, security, and predictability don't exist. That's why we say the only constant is change. Right. So the internal chatter for me is what we notice that is going on internally as an attempt to try to keep things in a way that feel comfortable keep mm -hmm. us in a way where we feel accepted mm -hmm. uh, by the external world the real issue is what is it that is noticing this chatter you see, when we have internal chatter, we immediately assume that's us. Mm -hmm. That's why we say it's my mind. Right. Or my monkey actually, mind. <laughs> yeah, but it's not us. It's our persona. Mm. The persona is the mask that covers the eyes, the true essence of our eyes that is peering through the persona. The persona is the outfit we wear <coughs> to fit in to this world. What is peering through the persona is the actual source of our seeing. So mm. when all of us know, at least to a fairly good degree, when there is this internal chatter, or what you call monkey mind. The reason we are aware of it is because the real us, the real we, is just a field of awareness that is aware of what's going on. In other words, we are not the activity of the mind. We are the observers of that activity. Now, let's talk about what that we is, because that we is not me, Jacob Lieberman, or Karen Kahn. That field of observation is just a field of awareness that is common to all living things it is the ocean within which all living things reside and emerge from and that field of awareness sees from no point of view in other words the real source of our seeing doesn't see this way or this way doesn't have desire, doesn't have a voice, it just notices. 
And so the shift that can often awaken one's ability to see both internally and externally is that when we uncover that the source of our seeing is not the eye, what we call the window of the soul, which is a biological window allowing light to come in. It's not the brain that is recording all of this, but it is this field of awareness which some people refer to as pure consciousness. This ocean of awareness, let me repeat again, is not individualized. Mm-hmm. So it isn't your consciousness versus my consciousness. We can say you have a point of view and I have a point of view and those things have to do with mind. But when we speak of consciousness, consciousness <clears throat> is a non-individualized field of awareness that is uh, ubiquitous throughout nature. All things are part of this field of awareness or animating force which we call consciousness. I term it pure awareness. When we become increasingly more aware of the source of the seeing, we rely less on the I. We rely, we identify less with the continual chatter of the mind. And we follow this immediate sense of knowing that our teachers used to say when we were kids, your first impression is always the right one. That first impression, which sometimes we call intuition Mm -hmm. or instinct, or it's a feeling, is not actually a feeling at all. It's an absolute knowing without a knower. And my sense of how that actually occurs has to do with the fact that light, which is the primal energy of life, it's what the Bible refers to as God when it says God is light. It's what spiritual texts speak of when they describe the light of consciousness or what physicists say is the ground of reality, the energy from which everything uh, emerges from. And so what we know about light is even though light is totally invisible, what we experience is not light, but it is brightness, that light is interacting with the hundred trillion cells in our body continually because every cell in the body has eyes just like Mm. the ones on your face and those eyes are designed to detect and respond to an invisible energy called light i say it's invisible because the cells are guided by the information from light before that information has actually taken form in the way we experience it in the external world. So in other words, we are continually being guided by the formless before it has alchemized into form. And that you can call precognition or what a sensitive would notice, or a psychic. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're seeing something. It is that they are noticing what is seeing them. You see, we are under the impression that we are all looking for life, 
my life's experience has shown me that life is looking for me. Hmm. That these subtle signals that the sensitive often notices are the signals of light received by the cells of our body mm -hmm. way before we have any conscious awareness of. Oh, yeah. And when and are responding to way before we have any conscious awareness of. So even the idea that I'm making it happen, I'm making the choices, I'm determining the next thing in my life is something we need to look at very critically because when you look at uh, very sophisticated neurological evaluations of the brain, specifically when an individual is involved in decision-making, what you see is often 10 to 12 seconds before the person is aware of even, quote, making a decision, their brain has already recorded the decision that they later come to, to notice and is already moving in that direction. If we were waiting to make the decisions before the body enacted them, we would never survive. That makes a lot of sense. So, uh, I know this has been a long answer to a short question, <laughs> but the, my sense is for our listeners, one, spend some time without your glasses. Mm. Not just to notice that things maybe are not as clear, but notice what becomes clear when you remove your glasses that maybe you don't notice while you're wearing your glasses. Okay. So one of the things that occurs when we remove our glasses is we feel a little insecure. Mm. Often we feel a little bit out of control. We start getting edgy. The mind says, oh, you're not going to notice someone and you will be embarrassed. Well, we start to notice all this um, emotionality and turmoil internally. The mind becomes very active. And when we really examine what our experiences, we often realize that those were the same feelings and concerns we had within a year or two of first getting our glasses. Huh. That, the, that the same feelings that emerge of feeling a little bit out of control, feeling a little concern, feeling a sense of embarrassment, whatever it is for us, feeling loss, that often those were the same feelings psycho-emotional sensations that preceded the changes we noticed in the eyes and in our ability to see. So when we remove our glasses, it allows us to see less of the external world and see and feel more of the internal world. And wow, so that makes a lot of that's sense. A, a wonderful practice. And then if you're working with uh, an optometrist, like a behavioral optometrist, someone that works with vision training or preventive vision care, very often they might prescribe a slightly weaker pair of glasses to help you sort of adjust to something a little bit softer. How much change is possible for each individual? I don't know ahead of time. But what I do know is this. Most people who wear glasses, especially those that are nearsighted and have astigmatism, when they remove their glasses, if you check their eyesight <clears throat> and write down what line they're able to see, 
if they then leave their glasses off for as little as 10 minutes to 30 minutes and then come back to a, the eye chart again, even if it's a different eye chart, they often will see one or two lines better. Whoa. Meaning that just relaxing the eyes, changing the perspective, allows one to experience more. And so when I discovered that in myself, that's what inspired me to give myself slightly weaker glasses and to see how I adjusted to that. Now, not everyone is going to have the experience I have. That is rather rare, but it's not impossible. The other thing is to spend time outdoors under natural light. And if you are able to do it without sunglasses, if you feel you're sensitive to light, wear a hat. But allow the natural light to enter the eyes, as that is the optimal fuel that your body needs. And allow yourself to do things like take walks where you don't have visual confinement where your mm. eyes can literally roam off into the distance and then on their own level go, ah, have a sigh of relief. If you're working at a computer, see if you can place your desk somewhere with a window behind it so that you're continually receiving natural light from the window and mm. also your eyes can look out the window to intermittently escape from the confined the confinement of just being up close. Uh, we know today that computers produce, the monitors have an unnatural source of light using LEDs, which have predominant energy in the blue end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. There is a tremendous amount of blue light in sunlight, and it is very, very beneficial. What makes it beneficial is that it is balanced by a large amount of red light as well. The reason there are so many problems with blue light in computers is that they have very large amounts of blue and much lesser amounts of red. So we get too much of the blue light in our computers and of course if we're using them or handheld devices or other electronic devices with blue LEDs if we use them at night they disturb our sleep <clears throat> they disturb all of our metabolic functions they can cause us to become overweight they can cause us not to be able to process sugar appropriately. <coughs> so the issue with blue light is a real one. So if you're working at computers for long periods of time, you might want to use blue blocking glasses, which are usually glasses with a light yellow or orange tint. Now, Companies claim to have blue blocking glasses that are clear. I have not found those to be as effective as the ones that have a light yellow or orange tint. In my particular case, I don't actually use those because my monitor is large. It's uh, right behind it is a window that's four feet by eight feet. So I'm continually getting a nice balance of natural light mm -hmm. and I'm outdoors a good bit. So for me, I don't find it so necessary, but most people uh, don't have that sort of a setup. They're working in cubicles or in offices that are windowless. Uh, and that kind of an environment can create all kinds of problems. So, anyway, I've gone on for a long time trying to answer perhaps many of your questions with one answer. 
Uh, but uh, if you have questions uh, at this point, I'd be happy to entertain them. Oh, perfect. Yeah, thank you so much. In fact, you know, behind my monitor is a, a, a decent-sized window, and uh, I really enjoyed, you know, looking out there and seeing the, the, the fawns and the deer and the chipmunks, you know. And my husband thought he was being really helpful uh, because we don't actually have drapes, <laughs> and it's like we're out in the woods. So he actually put up something there that blocks the window uh, because he says, well, we don't want people at night looking in there. I'm like, who's going to be here, the deer? You know, <laughs> but he's very protective. You know, so he put that in there. And so I got used to it being there, but then I realized, wow, what did I just do? You know what I mean? Like just blocking now, do you have, that. Do you, do you have street lights? Uh, no, we don't have street lights. So the only kind of light you have outside uh, might be moonlight or starlight? Correct. Yes, yes. Yeah, as long as that does not disturb your sleep, which it probably wouldn't except on a full moon, mm -hmm. I think it's fine, you know, to have the shades up. Uh, we also live in a more rural area, but there are, you know, uh, lights that you can see off in the city and so we find that we pull the blackout curtains at night ah. and what it does is it allows for a much deeper level of sleep uh, the problem is you know most people today can't blacken out their bedrooms you know if they don't have little lights on in there from alarm clocks. If you're mm -hmm. going to have night lights, they should be red. Red. Mm -hmm. Not blue, not white. Yep. Should not turn your cell phones on at night. Um, and if you have uh, street lights outside, you really should cover the windows because they have done a lot of studies all over the world. And when they go to areas where people cannot blacken out their windows or have a lot of commercial lighting that's visible through their windows, they find a much greater incidence of cancers, different cancers that are light-related, and many other metabolic disorders because at night when there is a transformation from sunlight to moonlight, which is a softer variety of sunlight, and starlight, that is also um, impacting our physiology. It's the physiology of restoration at night. You don't want to interfere with that. So if you have a lot of outdoor lighting on, uh, it would be best to cover the windows so that you can have a peaceful, restful night's sleep. Um, and, uh, but in your particular case, you don't need it. Right. Well, well I do do a lot of computer work. And, um, you know, I think some of my habits definitely, you know, need to change. Uh, and we walk outside with the dog every day. And what I noticed is that I'm normally holding the dog on the leash, so I'm always looking down at him. <laughs> I'm always looking down at him and where he's stepping, what he's doing, where I'm stepping, because I'm grounding at the same time with these grounding shoes, and there's like thorns and all sorts of stuff, you know. And then I realized, because I knew, you know, this interview was coming up, Dr. Lieberman, and I was like, wait a second, I'm not looking up, you know. So I started looking up and looking far and looking close and looking far, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I never look far or hardly ever look far. I'm like, no wonder my you know, you know, eyesight is, is not improving <laughs> as fast as I would well, like let to me, do. Let me share with you a few things just about that. Mm -hmm. If you remove your glasses while you're walking, if you're mm -hmm. able to do that, you'll notice that things are initially a little fuzzier. The central part of your vision, the part that sees details and so on, may not be able to probably will not be able to discern clarity to the same degree. But the peripheral part of the retina, which is the precognitive rods of the eye, those hmm. that 
sense what is about to happen or what is coming into your field and are mm -hmm. super sensitive, those will really be at work. And that's what you need to see peripherally what's on the ground and so on. Mm -hmm. So when you're walking, your dog is very, very aware. See if you can begin just with short spans of just looking straight ahead of you, mm -hmm. parallel to the ground. And while you're looking out, just be peripherally aware of the body expanding and contracting as it is inflated with oxygen and then deflated. Sounds Don't try great. to control the breathing because the breathing occurs on its own. Just notice how your body expands and then contracts and look off at nothing. Just look at nothing. Even if you do that for 30 seconds, wonderful, and then Maybe you notice you're thinking about something, no problem. When you notice it, try doing it again. And over time, begin to remove your glasses more and more. When you're in your home, when you're eating. And try doing these little mini meditations throughout the day. <coughs> so whenever you... It enters your awareness. Just close your eyes for a second. Just notice your body expanding, deflating, expanding again, contracting. Just a few seconds of noticing brings you back home. See, when the mind is active, the breathing is contracted. Yes. When the breathing is fluid, the mind is quiet. That's why breathing is such a foundational aspect of meditation. So these are things we can do whenever we visit the restroom, prior to eating, while we're washing the dishes, taking a walk, even driving our cars, we can continually um, have these 30-second, 15-second, one-minute periods, eyes opened and eyes closed, where we're actually doing a dynamic form of meditation just continually reminding ourselves over and over again of that state where we feel a sigh of relief, a sense of quiescence, and what we call heaven on earth. Mm, beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really looking forward to my walk with the dog today. Mm. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, it's really resonating with me. Just like there are times where you know I just have glasses on my head and just it's just there, you know, a habit. Uh, but I never really thought about consciously going, well, do I really need my glasses right now? You know, to take them off when I'm eating, when I'm talking to my spouse, you know, when I'm doing things where I don't need that close-up work or to read or anything like that, just to rest that place and get used to it. I do notice, uh, Dr. Lieberman, that when I first wake up in the morning, that everything seems slightly clearer. Right. And then when I put my glasses on or contacts on and take them off, then everything's blurry again. And I'm like, Can oh, I cool. ask you, what is the prescription of your contacts? Oh, gosh. Um, It'll, it says... Minus eight something. <laughs> so, my, so minus eight. And, and may I ask you how many times around the sun you have been in this lifetime? Oh, yes, you certainly may. Uh, well, how old am I? I am uh, 55, 54, 55. Okay. And you're wearing contacts that are like minus 8, right? 
Yes, and it has sig significant astigmatism, so they're that special kind of toric lens. Okay, um, and are and I they them when I figure skate? Are they soft lenses? Yes, I could never okay. tolerate hard lenses. And when you have to read, do your contacts have a portion for reading, or do you use reading glasses over them? Well, it's interesting because I never had problems reading. Um, Without your contacts. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't have problems reading close until a couple of years ago. Um, I, I w it just seemed like it happened overnight, and right. all of a sudden I couldn't read close that well. And my ophthalmologist, you know, ophthalmologist insists that I'm getting old. I need to wear reading glasses. <laughs> so I, I've been I've been kind of resisting that to some extent. But I literally just bought uh, blue light blocking reading glasses. And what um, power are they? <clears throat> to to something I I found something at the store like some sunglasses and I was trying different pairs of reading I literally just did this two weeks like two three weeks ago Dr Lieberman so I was like oh this one's the clearest I could read the back of this pill bottle or vitamin bottle or whatever so it was like two point five or something like that so, so um, I've worn them literally <laughs> three times since I bought them one of the things you could do is when you see your optometrist or ophthalmologist, mm -hmm. ask them if they can weaken your contact lenses slightly and still give you adequate vision at distance. The reason is very often they give you the strongest prescription for far away seeing. But if you weaken them slightly, you can still see well at distance, but it'll make reading easier. Right. I think they so, did one contact where they made it weaker so I could read better. Um, and that helps certain days. Yeah. That is something that I may have been the first person to do mm. in 1970. But mm -hmm. um, the problem I find with that, even though it seems to work for busy people, is the reason we have two eyes is because we're designed to have binocular or two eyes teaming together all the time. Right. When you set one eye for distance and one eye for reading, you disrupt the natural function of the brain, which is to get both eyes to work together. Oh, it, shoot. It, okay. also <laughs> in, it also impacts your perception of depth, and that could be the reason you're continually looking down mm. when you're walking your dog. Mm. Because if you do not have good two-eye vision, you won't know where things are in relation to you, Okay. Your perception will be will be affected in a negative way, and so you will become more unsure of yourself. Oh. So, so when you see them, ask them what is the weakest prescription for distance that you can give me in both eyes that will still allow me to see very adequately at distance but may allow me to see better up close. If you're going to wear reading glasses for reading, which is just fine, over your contacts, mm -hmm. I would prefer that both of your eyes were working together at distance. But I'll leave that to you and your vision care specialist. Okay, well that's great advice. It was funny because last time I went in, that's exactly what I asked him to do, and then uh, he didn't want to do it. Um, and and so you know, but I but now I have you, right? I have you as my backup. <laughs> well, so, you know, um, hopefully your doctor will work with you. Um, uh, so you know, at least you can inquire with them. 
Right, right. Well, the, interestingly, the, the, the contact lens specialist, the gal, uh, she's not the MD, but she's the one that, you know, does the fitting and the contacts and everything like that. She didn't like his idea. So, <laughs> so we ended up not changing anything because uh, he wanted to make it stronger. And I'm like, I do not want to make it stronger. <laughs> I was like, and he's like, yeah, but if you do this and you make this one weaker and then, you know, you'll be able to read and read distant. And I'm like, but I hardly drive. My husband drives like 95% of the time. I don't even need to read a sign. I mean, I'm, I'm not even in the city, you know. <laughs> right. But he was so insistent that I need to see far. Um, and uh, But mostly I'm doing close work uh, and, and that's why I ended up getting the yeah. reading glasses. But as long as I know the reading glasses aren't going to hurt me. Right, Dr. Nothing, nothing is going to hurt you. <clears throat> Just speak to your contact lens specialist. <clears throat> they will probably have a better sense. And again, ask them, what is the weakest prescription mm -hmm. for each eye for far away, for distance seeing, that will allow me to see adequately at distance, and because it'll be weaker, will allow me to see a little bit better up close. And see if there is a lens power that you can use that actually might allow you to see well enough at distance and maybe for some things up close without your reading glasses. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. And actually, you know, my, my physical glasses... Uh, not my contacts, are very, very old. I've had these for a very long time, and I prefer looking through them. And that's why I was trying to convince them to say, hey, I know these are weaker than my contacts, but I'm fine with them. Like, I can go do computer work, I can drive. You know what? If they're weaker, your contacts, you're nearsighted, right? Correct. Very nearsighted in my your family. Your contact lenses, because they're on the surface of the eye, should be weaker than your best prescription for glasses. Oh. So if you're telling me that your glasses are weaker and you prefer yes. them, yes. bring them to your contact lens specialist and see what, what she or he uh, will suggest for you. But as I said, Ask them for the weakest prescription at distance for both eyes, so both eyes are looking at distance, that give you adequate distance vision, not the best, but adequate distance vision, and see what your near vision is like with those on. Okay, that's a plan. That sounds fantastic. Uh, a couple Good. other questions I had for you, Dr. Lieberman. One was uh, about the, because uh, I know someone's going to ask this, the cell phones now have some sort of night function where it deletes some of the blue Absolutely light. Absolutely use it. Okay. So is that enough, or do we still need blue light blocking glasses if we do a lot I of think that's. I work? think it's a good thing I have mine set up that way so it automatically changes the spectrum of the yeah, light. I have too. that on my computer as well. Yes, me too. Okay, great. That's fantastic. And as far as, you know, glasses, um, you know, they, they said that now you can get a blue light um, version of the lenses. Uh, but when my friend said she had one, I looked at it, I said it was completely clear. So I'm guessing right. that, that the, is not the, that adequate. The clear ones I find are not as effective as the ones with a light yellow or light orange tint. For computer work, but if you're outside, you do want the blue light to hit your eyeball. Yes. Outside, I don't want anything blocking no, okay. the natural sunlight. Okay. Got it. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, Dr. Lieberman, where can people find information about you and your books? Um, they can visit my website, which is jacoblieberman.org, O-R-G, and Lieberman is spelled L-I-B-E-R-M-A-N. Or they can visit, you know, my Facebook page uh, where we're continually posting new research about things and uh, mm. interesting information. Uh, if people are interested in using color 
as a therapeutic tool. Um, there's a lovely kit that we create for home use, which I give to the people that I mentor, which is the primary thing I do now. Mm -hmm. And it's called the Spectral Receptivity System 3. We didn't have a yeah. chance to speak about this today, but I have found a, a significant relationship between our comfort level with certain colors and our discomfort with other colors. Um, and I found a relationship between the colors we like and dislike and the experiences in our life that continually trigger stress for us. And so Ooh. I have found ways of using color to desensitize from unresolved emotional triggers, and uh, which creates a, a big shift uh, wow. in someone's life. So this is work that I do with people uh, that I mentor, but people can also purchase this kit and use it on their own at home. Oh, fantastic. Yes, I see it on the site right now. So I just want to let folks know it's uh, www.jacoblieberman.org to get in touch with or get to know some of the uh, books and uh, products and things like that that uh, Dr. Lieberman has on the site. Uh, Dr. Lieberman, it has been an immense pleasure interviewing you today. Thank you so much for your time and your work and your wisdom. My pleasure. You have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you. You too. And thank you everyone for listening in. We'll see you next time on Light Warrior Radio.